If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com, sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. And now, sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, and enjoy the ride. The Abominable Snowman The legend of the Abominable Snowman, also known as the Yeti, goes back to ancient times. The creature is said to inhabit the Himalayan mountain region of Southeast Asia. Sightings of the creature go back to the 1830s when ethnologist B.H. Hodson had a fleeting encounter with an extremely tall bipedal beast. He later concluded the creature to be of orangutan origin. In the 1900s, there were several cases of odd human-like footprints found embedded in the snow of the Himalayan mountains. Multiple explorers also reported witnessing a large, dark, bipedal creature high in the mountains. Today, the legend is as alive and mysterious as ever. My name is Simon Fitzroyce. I'm a renowned ethologist, primatologist, and paleozoologist. I'm skeptical of most of the abominable snowman evidence. Many consider the footprint evidence to be nothing more than a Himalayan brown bear. They summarize that melting snow tends to warp the bear prints into more human-like prints. I tend to agree with that hypothesis. As for the sightings of large, dark, bipedal creatures in the mountains, I conclude the culprit to also be the Himalayan brown bear. Bears can walk on two legs for great distances if need be. I suspect the bipedal creature most have witnessed in the Himalayas to be a Himalayan brown bear with an injured front leg. When a bear severely injures one of their front legs, it's not uncommon for them to walk upright on their hind legs until the front leg heals enough to hold its weight again. Based on my research, I do believe the majority of abominable snowman sightings to be misidentified bears. However, the 1830s sighting by B.H. Hodgson always intrigued me. He theorized that the creature he saw was a large orangutan. Gigantopithecus is the name of an extinct great ape that is believed to have inhabited Southeast Asia hundreds of thousands of years ago. Standing at over nine feet tall, Gigantopithecus is the largest known great ape in history. Most researchers agree that its closest living relative is the orangutan. Is it possible that Gigantopithecus still exists to this day? and is hiding out in the Himalayan mountains? I ventured to Southeast Asia for a Himalayan expedition with the intention of finding the answer to that question. The following is a report of that expedition. The Expedition 
The expedition group was of modest size. Two experienced Himalayan guides led, while five workers hauled the majority of the gear. The guides were to take us to the region where B.H. Hodson spotted the orangutan creature, and then well beyond into the depths of the mountains that most human eyes have never seen. The trek to our main campsite was long and treacherous, but we made it with only minor issues. One unusual happening along the way was when one of our guides would occasionally stop and stare behind us, listening for something. He said he occasionally heard distant rustling in the tree lines behind us. He heard this often enough that he concluded that something was following us. Once our base camp was set up, the plan was to take a variety of minor expeditions during the day and then return to base camp at night. The first minor expedition consisted of just one of the guides and myself. This turned out to be more of a sightseeing tour. He took me to places where I could view some of the most impressive peaks in the area. On our way back, the guide kept pausing to look behind us. He insisted that something was following us from a distance. I didn't see or hear anything unusual, so I had to take his word for that. Our first night at base camp was pleasant. A raging campfire warmed our cold bodies, and we told stories as we got to know each other better. Shortly after retiring to our tents for the night, we all heard an unusual howl in the distance. At first I thought it was the wind howling, but then we all recognized that this was not nature. It was a creature of some sort. The howl was too far off to decipher properly, but from what I could hear, it sounded like a combination of an aggressive growl of a big cat and the roar of a bear. It was unsettling, to say the least, and I think we all took comfort in the fact that it appeared to be far away. The next day, both guides and one worker joined me in the next expedition. They took me to a Himalayan cave site that they insisted nobody knew about except for them. The cave entrance was enormous. Inside was equally impressive. An open front area quickly descended into deep tunnels. Our flashlights only allowed us to see a few yards in front of us before the light was swallowed in darkness. The caves were naturally warm in this climate a perfect shelter for any indigenous creature. We ventured down one of the deep winding cave shafts. The guides pointed me to a spot that was layered in thick shrubs, as if it was a bed for a gigantic creature. Not far from that area, we found a small pile of berries that something was harvesting. We planned on venturing further into the cave when we heard the familiar howl. It was exactly as we had heard the previous night, but this was much closer and coming from the cave just ahead of us. The howl gradually transformed into a hiss and a guttural growl. Whatever was emitting this sound was displaying considerable aggression. We bolted from the cave, and while the growling persisted, we were relieved that it kept its distance, seemingly satisfied that we were fleeing the area. That night, while I slept in my tent, I was awakened by a distant hollow wooden bang. It was a rhythmic pattern of three. 
three thuds, followed by a pause, and then three more thuds. The length of the pauses varied, but the thudding sound was consistent. I crawled out of my tent to hear the sounds better and realized that two guides were already out of their tents listening as well. We all determined that the sound was that of something wrapping a stick against the trunk of a tree. The guides insisted it was some kind of warning. The next morning, both guides took me to a desolate trail that they claimed few had traveled. Halfway down the trail, one of the guides got excited and rushed ahead. He was adamantly pointing to the ground. I hurried to his side and looked down at an obvious set of animal tracks imprinted in the snow. And these tracks were not made by a bear. They were humanoid in appearance, much like that of a barefooted human, but the size was immense. The tracks appeared to be made recently and they were precise. This was not an optical illusion caused by melting snow. The tracks were all identical and clearly made by a bipedal humanoid creature. We followed the tracks to a forest where they then disappeared into thick brush. That night at the campfire, the howling began again. This time it was closer to the camp. Much closer. Both guides appeared to be extremely concerned and recommended we leave first thing in the morning. After everyone had returned to their tents and went to sleep, I grabbed a flashlight and exited my tent. Before we vacated the area, I wanted to do a little exploring on my own at night. I returned to the trail where we found the tracks. The tracks had since been covered with a fine mist of snow. Ahead, the trail winded off into the night, but I noticed another trail to my left. This one was less distinct, perhaps a deer trail. I decided to follow it. The further I went, the denser the area became. I was about to turn back when the trail emptied out into a partial clearing. And there, at the other side of the clearing, I saw it. It wasn't more than 25 feet away. Its piercing eyes were staring at me. Its body was hulking. At first I thought it was only slightly taller than me, but then I realized it was standing on all fours like a gorilla. As it stood up on its hind legs, I instinctively started moving backward and tripped over a log. Even as I tumbled to the ground, I never took my eyes off of the creature. It had to be over ten feet tall. Its face was wide, much like that of an orangutan, but with much larger eyes. Its arms hung down to its kneecaps. Its short, dark hair was covered in a thin layer of snow. I could make out the creature's rippling muscles just under its hairline. It could have killed me with ease. I was hoping it would just snarl at me and allow me to retreat. It did neither. It stared at me with a compassionate expression, and though it did not communicate with me verbally, I got the overwhelming sense that it was somehow conveying to me that it just wanted to be left alone. I respected its wishes and turned back toward camp. As I approached our campsite, I could hear the distinctive howl that we had grown accustomed to, 
but it was coming from the opposite direction of which I saw the creature. I decided to follow it. As I got closer to the howl and could make it out more clearly, I recognized that it had a strange, tinny sound to it, almost as though it were mechanical. Then I saw movement from behind a tree just in front of me. I took cover and observed. As I peeked through the tree, I could see something step forward from the shield of the tree ahead. It was one of the workers. He was holding a megaphone and was pressing a digital recorder that was producing the howling sound up against the megaphone to amplify it. It was a hoax. It was all a hoax. When I stormed out from behind the tree to confront the worker, his eyes filled with shock. He thought I was back in my tent. I grabbed him by the jacket and roughly assisted him back to the campsite. As the remainder of our party scurried from their tents, I explained to them that I caught the worker creating the false howl red-handed. I wasn't sure what kind of response I was expecting from the others, but it sure wasn't what occurred. They immediately started looking around at each other with guilty expressions, like children who just got caught doing something naughty. And then it dawned on me. They were all in on it. My blood began to boil and I couldn't stop myself from charging one of the guides. I knocked him to the ground and started shaking him. The others quickly pulled me off of him and restrained me until I simmered down. The lead guide explained that they were hoping to drum up more business for their expedition tours. I spoke to him with disgust. You faked all of it. He came clean. Yes, we placed the shrubs and berries in the cave before we took you in. One of the workers snuck out at night and hit a stick against a tree. We used pre-made footprint models to lay the tracks. And you already saw how we did the howling, so yes, we faked all of it. I slowly sat down on the cold Himalayan earth and took in a few deep breaths. I felt like an idiot. They had almost pulled it off. I had been believing it all, hook, line, and sinker. It took me a little while to regain my composure. When I finally did, I had to commend them on the amazing creature costume. Whichever of you made the creature costume could make a comfortable living in Hollywood. That was impressive. How did you make those eyes so believable? And that thing had to be ten feet tall. It couldn't have been a full costume. It was too big. Was it mechanical? How did you do it? All of the members of my party were looking around in confusion as if they didn't understand what I was saying, so I reiterated. The creature costume, it was incredibly realistic. How did you do it? The answer the guide gave me has echoed through my mind ever since. I don't know what you're talking about. We did not make any costume or mechanical creature.
The Bermuda Triangle The Bermuda Triangle is a mysterious triangular region of the Atlantic Ocean. The points of the triangle connect at Bermuda, Miami, and San Juan. Countless unexplained phenomena are said to have taken place in the triangle, such as mysterious disappearances of planes, ships, and people. Many have also reported unusual lights both above and below the surface of the ocean. Others have witnessed objects vanishing in thin air. The stories go on and on. These are a few individual accounts of some of the more mysterious occurrences that supposedly transpired within the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle, The Sea Hag My name is Josh and I had been working for the Coast Guard for about five years when this happened. It was a slow day, the ocean was calm and we weren't getting many calls, uh, nothing of interest anyway. It was nearing dusk when we got radio communication from a cabin cruiser boat that identified itself as the Sea Hag. The transmission was extremely staticky and difficult to make out. The owner of the vessel said they were approaching a strange fog bank and were concerned. I asked for clarification because it was a beautiful, clear day. He said this was a wall of fog unlike anything he had ever seen. He went on to describe blue flashes of light coming from within the fog. The fog bank he spoke of didn't make sense under the current weather conditions and was not showing up on our radar. As I spoke with him, he said that their cabin cruiser had lost all functions and was dead in the water. He gave us their coordinates and then started to panic as he said the fog bank was upon them. After that, the radio went dead. We managed to locate the cabin cruiser without a problem. It was in the general vicinity of the coordinates they gave us. We found it a little odd that nobody was on deck waiting for us. We assumed that they were in the cabin and called out to them, but nobody emerged or answered back. Since we weren't getting any responses, we boarded the cabin cruiser, only to find it completely empty. There was not a soul on that boat. There was no sign of anything unusual. Everything was neat and tidy, nothing appeared to be missing, all of their food and drinks were still intact, the ship owner's wallet was even on the nightstand and had a fair amount of cash in it. We don't know what happened to the crew of the Sea Hag, but there was no sign of foul play or any unusual incidents at all. The people aboard the Sea Hag were never found. The Bermuda Triangle Pirates. This happened back in the 1970s when I was in my mid-twenties. I took my girlfriend out on my cat boat. It was a perfect day for sailing. The temperature was in the low 70s. The wind and waves were perfect. The water was especially blue and the sky was clear. I couldn't have asked for anything more. We were gliding along the ocean when we noticed a strange weather anomaly just ahead. The best way I could describe it was a wall of fog, and it seemed to appear out of nowhere. It was oddly uniform in the shape of a perfect square. To the right and left of it was a clear sky and calm water. 
I had never seen anything like it. Then things escalated quickly. From the center of the wall of fog, a large weathered ship emerged. It was a sloop. For the layperson, that's a type of sailboat. This thing was scarred as if it had seen battle. Then I noticed the crew. They were a motley bunch in tattered clothing. Many were wearing raggedy hats or bandanas to keep the relentless sun at bay. We were close enough to see the permanent scars etched across some of the men's faces. I looked up at their flag to see they were flying a Jolly Roger, which is a black flag with skull and crossbones. Back in the golden age of pirates, a pirate ship would often raise a black flag or a black flag with a skull or skull and crossbones as a warning to the ship they were about to attack. The flag was a way of allowing the ship to surrender without a fight or be slaughtered. In addition to the flag, pirates would often display their power by firing warning shots over the bow. This would regularly be accompanied by the army of pirates exhibiting their size and strength by brandishing weapons and yelling out threats in an intimidating manner. And that's exactly what was happening here. The majority of the crew had their swords drawn. They were shouting out threats of rage. All of a sudden, their rage turned to confusion. They started looking around in bewilderment. It was as though they were preparing to conquer an enemy ship, but then suddenly emerged elsewhere. The ship and crew appeared before us for approximately 10 seconds and then vanished before our eyes and the wall of fog disappeared. There were no other boats around to corroborate our story. Whenever my girlfriend and I tell anyone about this, they think we're just making the whole thing up, but we're not. This happened. I have no explanation for it, but it happened. The Bermuda Triangle, Flight 2193. My name is Peter. This event took place in 1999. I was flying my Cessna 172 from the Bahamas to a little airstrip I frequent south of Miami, Florida. It was a pleasant day, clear skies, no weather anomalies were on the radar. I had made this journey countless times in the past. As I approached Florida, I noticed thick dark clouds developing in front of me out of nowhere. As I flew through them, I noticed a quick blast of blue light, and then I emerged from the clouds. That was strange, but it all happened so fast that I didn't really have time to think about it. And once again, the skies were clear, everything seemed fine, and I began my descent toward the airstrip. As I prepared to land, an air traffic controller chimed in, asking where I was planning to land. As I rattled off the name of the airstrip, there was a long pause before he said, That airfield hasn't been functional in decades. Proceed at your own risk. I asked for elaboration, but the radio went dead. I had good visual on the runway. As was mentioned, the airstrip looked like it was no longer in use, but it was still clear enough for me to land, so I did so. I couldn't explain what was happening. This was the airstrip I always use, but it was cracked and infested with weeds. I recognized the air traffic tower, but it appeared abandoned. 
The windows were broken and it was covered in ivy. I walked past the tower to the small parking lot, but the parking lot was no longer there. In place of it was a meadow filled with daisies. This was all overwhelming, but I was more curious than I was scared. Across the meadow I could see a road and some kind of small building just beyond it, so I made my way toward it. When I reached the road I was struck by the material the road was made out of. This wasn't asphalt, it was some kind of glass-like plastic. It was solid black, no yellow lines down the middle or white line on the side. I jumped back when I saw a vehicle pass me. It made barely any sound. I could hear a subtle whiz as it went by. The vehicle was not like anything I had seen before. It was oval. The bottom half appeared to be made out of thick rubber similar to tires. The top half was a clear dome. This one had a slight tint to it, but I could see two passengers in the vehicle. They were two women and were holding a conversation. Neither was looking at the road because neither was driving. It took me a second to recognize that the vehicle had no tires. It had some kind of a metal bar underneath that seemed to be hovering inches above the glass road. I looked across the road to the small building. It was lined with a constant window and had a bright sign above the door that said Mel's Diner. There were no other vehicles in sight, so I hurried across the strange road and into the diner. The diner was empty except for the worker behind the counter. She was an attractive woman in her 40s with bright red hair. And I don't mean like a natural redhead, I mean red hair, like a fire engine, that kind of red. She was wearing a gray uniform of some sort. It was an odd material that reminded me of a cross between terry cloth and the rough side of Velcro. She asked me what I wanted and I asked her for a cup of coffee. She rattled off a bunch of coffee names that I was not familiar with, so I asked her if she had any regular old black coffee. She smiled and said, My kind of guy. She picked up a clear coffee cup and set it inside a small rectangular device and spoke my order to the machine. I then watched as the cup filled with coffee. She placed the cup in front of me and asked if I wanted anything else, and I told her no. She then nonchalantly asked for my BEC card. I guess she noticed the confusion on my face because she then said, We take cradle and M chips as well. I shrugged my shoulders and handed her a $10 bill from my wallet. She seemed to find the currency interesting and kept running her hand over it. Old United States money. I haven't seen one of these in a while. I asked her what she meant by old United States. She kept looking at me oddly. Money from before the United States broke up. You can't use this here, but any antique store will exchange it for you. I guess she could tell my mind was whirling and told me that the coffee was on the house. I desperately wanted to ask her what year it was. I knew it would sound crazy, but I blurted out the question anyway. She was really nice. She chuckled and humored me by simply answering me without acting like I was a lunatic. 2193. That was the year I was in. 
I thanked her for her hospitality and drank the coffee. I don't know how they are making coffee in the year 2193, but that was the best coffee I ever tasted. I left the diner and headed back to the abandoned airstrip. I considered staying put in the year 2193, I honestly did. Ultimately, I decided to fly back to the Bahamas. I had the mindset that if I were still in 2193 when I landed, I wouldn't sweat it. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. On my flight back, I encountered the gray clouds again. I flew through them, experienced that instantaneous blue flash, and then landed in the Bahamas. It was 1999. I was back in my own time. I didn't get to experience much in 2193, but it was a fascinating day. And the coffee was great. I live next door to an insane asylum. In between a mid-sized rural town and farming community lives a mammoth building called the Western Hopkins State Hospital. The building was built in the 1950s as a lunatic asylum. To this day, the building is still functional as a mental institution. Over the years, many people have lived in the houses next to the hospital. The following are some of their stories. The South Side Window I'm a 71-year-old female. I live on the south side of the hospital. That's the maximum security side of the hospital which houses their most disturbed and dangerous patients. There's a large window on the top floor of the hospital that I can see quite well from my upstairs bedroom window. The window is quite a distance away, so during the day I can't see anything through the window, but at night when the light is turned on over there, the room is unusually bright. The window is too far away for me to make out details, but I can see silhouettes quite well. While I lived there, many different patients have occupied the room. Up until recently, I always thought the creepiest patient in that room was the one whose silhouette I could see pacing back and forth in front of the window for hours on end. The current patient housed in that room beats that one by a long shot. At night, when the light in their room is turned on, the patient stands in front of the window and stares out. They don't move, they stare out that window until the light is turned off. For all I know, they continue to stare out the window when the light is out, but at that point I can no longer see them. With the naked eye, I can tell that the patient is a woman with long, stringy black hair. Night after night, she stares out that window. I was always curious as to what she spent all her time staring at. My husband is an astronomer and has a vast collection of heavy-duty telescopes. One night, I decided to use one to get a close-up view of the mysterious patient and see if I could ascertain what she was staring at. 
I set up the telescope he said would work best for my purposes and waited until night. When the light in the room came on and she stood staring out, I zoomed in and focused the telescope on her face. I was shocked at the detail I could see. She was extremely pale. Her lips were dry and pruned. Her hair was either greasy or wet and hung down over the majority of her face. But I could see her eyes. They were bright green and intimidating. I finally was able to see what she was looking at. Me. She was staring directly at me. I jumped back. I wasn't expecting that. I looked again to confirm and her eyes were still fixed on me. I thought maybe she saw me messing with the telescope and that caught her attention, so the next night I looked at her again. She was still staring directly at me. Night after night I would check to see what she was staring at and it was always me. I tried everything. I'd make sure all the lights were out. I'd bring the telescope farther back into the room. I'd change rooms. I'd go outside. No matter what I did or where I was, she was always staring at me. It sends chills down my spine to think that every one of those nights when I was wondering what had her so enthralled to stare out her window for hours on end, she was staring at me the entire time. I hope they change her room soon. My fear is that if she ever gets out, she may come for a closer look. The Escape I'm a 64-year-old widow. My husband died last year. I've been living in this big farmhouse all alone ever since. My kids say that I should sell the house and move someplace that is smaller and more manageable. They're right, but this house is all I know. I've lived here since I was 20. All my memories of my life with my husband are here. So I stay. I spend most of my evenings staring out the window at the hospital. It's a beautiful structure. Most people would assume it to be a regular hospital if it weren't for the large security booth people have to check in with before they enter or leave. One night I was looking out the window and noticed at least two dozen patients milling about outside the hospital. They were all wearing hospital gowns and seemed lethargic and sluggish like zombies. Then I saw someone push their way through the crowd of patients. They too were in a hospital gown, but they weren't sluggish like the others. They ran fast away from the other patients, off the hospital grounds, and toward my house. I watched through my window as the escaped patient darted into my woodshed in the backyard and closed the door behind them. I looked back out the window at the hospital. Several security guards were outside trying to round the sluggish patients up. I didn't think that they were aware that one of them got away. I was going to give the hospital a call to let them know, but was startled when I heard someone trying to get into my back door. Fortunately, the door was locked, but they were jiggling the knob and pounding on the door for a good 10 seconds before they stopped and everything went silent. I hid in my closet and called the police. When they arrived, they found the escaped patient's gown in the shed. 
Missing were a pair of my husband's old work clothes and a hammer. My door was slightly dented from where he tried to break in. Apparently, after not being able to get into my house, the escaped lunatic broke into my neighbor's house next door and murdered them with the hammer he stole from my shed. I moved the following month. Morse Code I'm a 45-year-old woman. I live in a house directly across the street from the Western Hopkins State Hospital. My husband is a cross-country truck driver, so I'm home alone often. I spend a lot of time sitting out on our bedroom balcony looking at the hospital. I'm a sucker for big old buildings. One night, I was sitting out on my balcony sipping a glass of sweet tea when I noticed light flashing from one of the patient's windows. At first, I didn't think much of it, but as it continued, it was obvious to me that it was being done intentionally. Someone was trying to communicate. I had spent 20 years in the Navy, so I quickly recognized that this was Morse code. My Morse code ability was a little rusty, but came back to me quick. The message the patient was sending over and over was, Help! They are trying to kill me. This message kept coming for long intervals for several nights in a row. Finally, I visited the hospital to report this. I pointed out which room it was and that I was concerned, but the hospital administrators assured me that the patient in the room was suffering from paranoid delusions. That night, while on my balcony, another Morse code message came from the same window. This time the message was different. Snitch, I know where you live. Better hope I never get out. I'm going to kill you. The Wailing I'm a 57-year-old male. My family and I live just down the road from the mental hospital. One night, I was woken up in the middle of the night by a strange sound. It, it was so loud and eerie. You know how in zombie movies when a giant group of zombies are attacking a house and they all make that hideous moaning and wailing? That's exactly what I was hearing. I swear I thought our house was being invaded by zombies. I looked over at the clock on my nightstand to see what time it was, but it was out. I got up and tried to turn on a light, but nothing. The electricity had gone out. I looked out the window and down the street at the hospital. It was engulfed in darkness. This isn't the first time we had a power outage, but usually the hospital has a backup generator that kicks on and they still have ample light. I guess for some reason on this night the backup generator at the hospital died too. The entire hospital had gone dark, and I guess it was freaking a lot of the patients out and they were screaming, moaning, and wailing all at the same time. I couldn't believe how loud it was. I had never heard anything like that. I broke out in goosebumps and can feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck. As soon as the electricity came back on, the wailing stopped. That was the only time that ever happened, but I'll never forget it. To this day, I still have nightmares about that horrific wailing.
enjoyed the show we're dying for you to come back for more <laughs> please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen on we'll see you soon very soon